The French History Podcast is brought to you by Evergreen Podcasts. History, pop culture, news, whatever it is you're looking for, Evergreen has the best of it. Today's episode is an interview with Dr. Bonnie Efros. Efros received her PhD from the University of California, Los Angeles. She is currently a professor at the University of British Columbia. She has published multiple books on Merovingian archaeology. Her most recent work takes her closer to the modern age and is the subject of our discussion. Her book, Incidental Archaeologists, French Officers, and the Rediscovery of Roman North Africa, 1830-1870, is the winner of the French Colonial Historical Society's 2019 Alf Andrew Hegoy Book Prize, recognizing the best book dealing with the French colonial experience since 1815. The book covers French interactions with Roman ruins in the newly conquered territory of Algeria. The work is a brilliant and complex examination of ancient artifacts, French imperialism, and indigenous lives. Thank you so much for being with me, Dr. Efros. Your book, Incidental Archaeologists, French Officers, and the Rediscovery of Roman North Africa, is a truly fantastic work. What led you to this topic? Thank you so much for having me. So, I guess, um, for me, I sort of fell into this project, and um, uh, as an as a scholar who had worked uh, prior to this on uh, national archaeology and provincial archaeology within France, focused on the early Middle Ages, I had a deep interest in thinking about the role of archaeological societies. And I noticed that similar uh, organizations had been established in North Africa. And I, um, and I turned at that point to thinking about um, whether there was the possibility of working on the history of archaeology in North Africa. But um, as I got deeper into this project, I began to look at the lists of members who were part of these archaeological societies, which are frequently listed at the beginning of each of their um, volumes. I realized that there was an absence of any uh, names that were in Arabic or that indicated a presence of the indigenous population in these um, organizations, which is quite different from France, because often you would have local notables who would join these organizations. Um, These were essentially uh, groups that promoted the learning of an area of a region uh, that took great pride in the history of that area and the archaeology. But what you see in North Africa is that the list included many officers. Now, my training was as actually as an early medievalist, and so for me, thinking about North Africa initially was that it was part of the Roman world, that there shouldn't be so many differences. It was quite naive um, because of the way I came into uh, the history of archaeology. And so 
um, you know, it was it was quite late that it dawned on me that the the structure of the way that archaeology was structured in North Africa is a direct uh, result of colonization efforts, of the conquest of colonization, and that the way in which this work was done was um, was oriented towards a European population rather than an indigenous population. And that was really the spark for me of the way in which I did this work. Now, of course, there was work that had been done on this project, most importantly, uh, the work of uh, Nabula Lebsir, um, and that really is what made it possible for me to think where I could sort of uh, bring in the perspective I had from working on the way that archaeology developed, national archaeology within France, and to think about the distinctions between that and what was happening in North Africa. But truly then, the work became about the conquest. And so I really wanted to focus on the period that most uh, of the histories most of the histories focused on the period after the 1870s and especially after the 1880s when the French sort of set up formal institutions in North Africa to address the question of archaeology. In the period before that, in the midst of the war, I was interested in what the dynamic was because individuals, in some senses, particularly members of the military, had um, a lot of latitude in terms of how they wanted to shape um, their studies. So that's really sort of the way in which this project occurred. It was not it was not the project that I thought it would be at the very beginning, because I was thinking about things like vandal archaeology, which isn't studied in the period I was interested in. And so the the book project as a whole shifted then to thinking about Roman archaeology, which plays in this period between 1830, uh, the period of the conquest, and 1870, the largest role. And of course, what also made this project possible was the funding that I got from the Rothman Foundation at the University of Florida, where I was when I began this project. Um, and I also had support from the National Endowment for the Humanities, as well as from the Institute of Advanced Studies at, uh, at Princeton, which allowed me a year for the writing of this. And I also spent a year in France at the University of Poitiers, where uh, I was a visiting scholar. So the kind of work that was involved, especially since I was relatively new uh, to the study of North Africa, um, it was these kinds of resources that made sort of the deep archival dives that I needed to do in order to make this possible. That's, that's really how, how it transpires. Funding makes good work possible, so don't forget to support your historians. You touched on this a little bit, but your book really deals a lot with negative space. The surviving sources are virtually, if not entirely, all in French by French citizens. How do you go about uncovering the perceptions, attitudes, and relations between the indigenous peoples of what is now Algeria with the Roman ruins? Yeah, that's a difficult uh, question, but I think it's a very important one. Um, I think that uh, in the history of archaeology, when you think about the, the grand narratives, the great discoveries um, that were made largely in, in the narratives that are told, it's by sort of European intrepid explorers. And that's part of this bigger question of colonialism as a whole, of the narrative of discovery, which has a tendency to assume either 
the absence of people from these spaces, or as we see in North Africa, sort of a combination, that the French assumed that uh, indigenous people were not interested in this material. And another thing that becomes a very strong part of the French narrative of these materials is that it's part of this narrative of this material is ours. So when, when the conquest of Algeria was launched, unlike perhaps in the case of, say, um, Egypt, that um, there wasn't ne necessarily the understanding of the kinds of remains that were going to be found when the French arrived uh, in uh, places like Algiers. But when they saw Roman material, it looked familiar to them, right? And um, I discuss this at length in the book, but many of the officers that are part of the conquest uh, came out of the Ecole Polytechnique. Uh, they uh, were trained in Latin. They were trained in cartography. And they didn't have a very good visual map, aside from ancient sources, about what it was they were going to find when they arrived there. So the narrative um, that they create is very much about the Romans, because they see themselves as following in the footsteps of the ancient Romans, of the Third Augustan Legion in particular, and the way in which they justify their vision of the conquest, because it was not well planned uh, in terms of what the future of this region was going to be. So yes, my, my, my interpretation of these materials is based on largely on the French one, because um, well, first of all, as a French historian, um, I was interested in the way that the French construct this narrative, but it was very difficult then to reconstruct what indigenous attitudes were towards these remains as early as the 1830s or before the conquest period. I did try to the extent that was possible, but, but this is hard to do because the French so, because they dominated this discourse, and they were projecting it back to um, to metropolitan France. They weren't trying to convince to a large extent, and most of the stories that I was able to find in their accounts claimed that the indigenous people had no interest in this material. And it was also a similar, um, there was a similar narrative that, that they projected was that these sites had been abandoned or abused by indigenous people, and thus uh, the French had the right to tell the story, that they were the new generation of the conquerors, that since they had been conquered themselves by the Romans, they had the right to this territory. And key to this argument were the inscriptions, which were in Latin, which allowed them to tell the story which they said was theirs. They said that the, the Arab conquest of North Africa had turned the indigenous people away from this material, and thus it wasn't of interest. And they were sort of rightfully restoring North Africa from what they described as this period of piracy, you know, the Barbary Coast, that they were returning North Africa back to the fold of the Mediterranean, sort of initiating a new period uh, of, of Roman or Roman-descended domination, which now the French saw themselves as the rightful inheritors. And this was also, um, you know, something that had a narrative that had been pushed by Napoleon as well, that, you know, sort of a new empire was being established North Africa would be a part of it, and um, and very soon they would make uh, Algeria, uh, you know, three different departments of France, so a part of the administrative 
structure, which showed very clearly that they had no plans to make this a separate colony, but this essentially would be a part of France. And so the archaeology fits in here. And frankly, you know, you can see from the, the archaeological societies from this moment on that the, the indigenous people are not present there and they're being sort of consciously erased from that past. It's sort of like an intermediate period that doesn't matter at all. And the focus, so the, they sort of jump back to the Roman period. They look at the indigenous population with the hopes, this happens maybe 40, 50 years later, that they eventually they would convert them and they would become truly French and Christian, which doesn't happen. But, but that this intermediary period doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter to them anyway, that they want to turn the clock back to the time of the Third Augustan Legion. And later, and this is after the period of the book uh, work that I've done since then, is that they focus instead also on, um, and this is in the case of Christian missionaries who do archaeology in the 1870s up, uh, and later, that they turn to um, the idea of, and the period of St. Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine of Hippo becomes the foundation for this idea that they're restoring Christianity to North Africa. They're not bringing it anew. And this is something that's aimed largely at the settler the colonial population because of the lack of success they have in, in converting um, uh, either Arabs or the Berber population uh, to Christianity, which is no great surprise um, given the, the nature of the conquest um, and, and the way it transpired. What is remarkable about the excavations in Algeria is how unprofessional they were in the 1830s and decades later. You even make the point that during his Egyptian campaign 30 years earlier, Napoleon Bonaparte had a more professional corps of researchers. Why were French forces in Algeria so initially inept when dealing with historic artifacts? It's a really great question. I think there are a few different ways that we can think about this. I mean, first, I'll say that in the 1830s, archaeology was an amateur undertaking wherever it was happening. There was no formal training that you could have in archaeology. It simply didn't exist. All the archaeologists we're looking at at this period are either trained as architects, we're talking about uh, military officers, or in the case of uh, some of the excavations we see happening in France, uh, we see people who are simply excavating on their own land. You know, they're, they're digging things up. So in the 1830s, there's not a good sense of, of stratigraphy. There's not formal training in this area. And it is largely fueled by enthusiasm. Now, in the case of when Napoleon goes uh, to Egypt in the, at the very end of the 18th century, he had an interest in Egyptology or what would become Egyptology. He was interested in the remains that he might find there. And so part of uh, his enterprise was to bring along scholars, for instance, linguists. Of, of course, they couldn't read hieroglyphics yet. That wouldn't happen until uh, Champollion uh, in the 1820s. But they had an interest in bringing this material back again uh, to France. It's part of this idea of sort of imperial conquest that would be repeated over and over again is that part of the idea of conquest is to bring 
large remains, impressive remains back to your metropolitan capital to show the importance of where you've been and, and where you're going. And, and sort of it's associated with your status. If you look at, say, the British Museum um, or the important museums uh, in Berlin, all of these museums become part of that national narrative. Now, after Napoleon um, basically looted Egypt, he looted Rome, he brought these remains back to the Louvre, these would be put on display as part of uh, sort of a sign uh, of his achievements and that of his regime. Now, in the case of the invasion of Algeria in 1830, this was not particularly well thought out, and the objective there was not to bring in scholars at the beginning. Uh, I would say that the, the conquest has been shown by people working in this area, um, like Jennifer Sessions, for instance, that, you know, this was sort of a, a last-minute bid, and, and six weeks later, a new regime comes in, right? So there's not a lot of planning, and um, the scholars at the uh, Académie des Inscriptions et Belles-Lettres in, in Paris um, were pushing. They were like, well, we did this for Napoleon. We should have a delegation go south uh, with us uh, to form part of this. But, but because of the nature of the war... The Ministry of War did not want there to be a lot of civilians coming at the same time um, to Algeria that there were massacres taking place. It's not until 1839 that they received permission to have a delegation that includes scholars to go down to engage in this work. So it takes some time for this to happen, and by the time they arrive, a lot of material has already been destroyed. And they're only allowed to stay a very short time because of the beginning of Bougeot's campaign in the Sahara, uh, which also was something that the, the Ministry of War and the Governor General of, of uh, Algeria did not want to get back to metropolitan France because of the concern that there might be opposition in France if they actually knew what was going on in uh, North Africa this time. The, the civilian population in this period is relatively small, and there were limits put on even when this group does manage to go down, but they're abruptly withdrawn again in the early 1840s, so they don't have time to do the, you know, there's nothing similar to the Description de l'Egypte, which uh, is produced after um, Napoleon's conquest of Egypt. Even when the French don't have access to Egypt any longer, they're still producing more material that came out of those initial steps. The other thing I should mention, too, though, is that what worked in, the favor of, uh, in favor of doing archaeology in this region is that officers did have access to their soldiers who could do a lot of the heavy lifting that was necessary to, to undertake archaeology in this region. But always competing with those archaeological interests, which were largely driven by individual interest by, of officers who were, wanted to explore this further, was the insistence that a lot of resources go towards the war and not be distracted by this archaeological uh, question. And because these archaeological materials uh, furthered the war effort, they could be used, inscriptions, large blocks of stone could be used to build buildings, they could be used to pave roads. And so at the same time there's this interest, there's also the competing interest of the way in which 
archaeological material might serve military purposes as opposed to scholarly ones, and it was the military ones that usually won out. The, the other thing I'll mention, of course, is that it was much easier to ship antiquities out of Egypt because of the Nile than it was to move materials out of Algeria, especially as the, the war effort moved past the coastal cities and moved inland, right? Because you're talking about moving heavy stone objects. You don't have well-paved roads. Um, these are very, very heavy. So in the 1830s, there were some ideas about, for instance, bringing triumphal uh, arches back to France, but ultimately most of these were abandoned. And the material that does ultimately make it to France, there's not a huge amount of material that, that comes back, the way, say, compared to uh, the Egyptian material, which a lot of it gets diverted um, to England um, because um, the, uh, uh, the defeat of the, of the French uh, Navy. Um, but it's much harder to bring the material back. And if you go to places like the Louvre, where some of this material is present, um, you can see some of these pieces are heavily damaged. And I think it's because of the way in which it was transported. The rail lines are significantly later. Um, and so the bits and pieces that make their way back are, have to be relatively transportable. And the idea of bringing large remains back ultimately um, the, the French abandoned. It was simply not um, a high priority. It's not until the period of Napoleon III under the Second Empire, um, who, of course, Napoleon III was much more interested in Roman remains because of his own excavations within France. But he, too, he's not willing to invest a huge amount of money into the archaeological efforts. So these remain sort of more ad hoc. And ultimately, what the French do is build museums within Algeria which are directed not at the indigenous population, but at the colonial population to teach them the same narrative that I was describing before. We're the descendants of the Romans. We have the right to be here to give uh, the new colonists coming from not just from France, but various parts of the Mediterranean. There are a lot of uh, Italian and Sicilian uh, immigrants in this period into um, Algeria. Um, but it's to sort of acculturate them, to make them understand that, that North Africa is a part of this same inheritance and that they have the right to be there. A major theme of the book is violence, particularly by French forces against the indigenous populations. You've mentioned quite a bit of this, but especially focusing on perhaps the indigenous people, can you explain how violence impacted archaeological work and historical writing? Yeah, this was a very difficult... Um, I have to say, in, in working on this project, um, it was really an eye-opener. Um, I had worked on issues related to violence in the early medieval period, earlier in my career, but that seemed at a much greater remove than dealing with what I was reading in the archives. It was very, very difficult. And also, it was difficult for me to find a balance in the book, and this was something I was constantly weighing to make sure that I was not prioritizing the question of the remains over the fate of the indigenous people whose land was appropriated, whose livestock was uh, taken, whose store uh, houses of grain and things were burnt, 
um, particularly the use by the French uh, of what's known as the razzia. Uh, these were sort of punitive, uh, um, uh, punitive measures that were taken against these populations, the description of the murder of um, civilians, very, very moving and very difficult to read. Um, I did a lot of work in the military archives in France, in Vincennes, where I would read the journals, uh, the sort of expedition journals that were written by the same officers who were taking notes about the archaeological materials that they were seeing. And it was difficult for me to imagine how you could engage in a razzia and then a day later turn around and start digging things. For me, um, it was sort of incomprehensible, but at the same time, there are plenty of modern parallels that we read about in the news um, that could be likened to the way in which this kind of violence was applied and then erased you see, by focusing on the early period, these officers, in a way, were able to sort of justify, I think, what they were doing during the daytime. You know, sort of their their daytime versus their, you know, their daytime job as officers, which they were murdering people, versus, you know, the collection of materials that sort of furthered what it was they were interested in and that created the ideological framework for the conquest. Now, this, this framework wasn't there in the beginning. What I noticed was it becomes more firmly cemented as time goes on. So um, one of the, the, the individuals I spent a lot of time working on was a man named the Colonel Carbuccia, who um, was in charge of uh, troops from the Foreign Legion. Uh, who was based in um, a, a military camp called Botna, which is very close to the archaeological site of Lambasis, um, where he went on a regular basis to excavate. He actually got himself into some trouble for diverting uh, military resources uh, into his archaeological efforts. The, the military um, authorities were not very happy he was doing that. But what's quite interesting is that, or fascinating, I guess you could say, or horrifying, was that, you know, at one point he was so angered that some local youths had defaced one of the inscriptions that uh, he had collected that, that he actually um, said, if you don't turn over those young people to us, you know, we're just going to destroy your village, right? So there are intersections, examples like that, where you see the violence intersect with um, with the archaeology itself but in many cases it's sort of it's sort of strange I, it's, it's impossible for me to comprehend the way in which these things are compartmentalized um, in other words the the two things that they could write letters back about their finds and draw beautiful images of the remains of their finding and yet you know from 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 the, their, their um, journals having to do with the expeditions, that they had just, uh, you know, unleashed unbelievable violence on the people uh, they encountered. I think that the way they do it is that they, in a way, they separate it. They say these were the Romans, and, um, you know, these people who are here, they, they would claim, oh, you know, these are people, these are invaders, these are Arab invaders. So they, 
they don't, we separate the two of them. And there's some exceptions in places like Lambasis where they think they can see some of the indigenous people, maybe descendants of the Romans. These are all kinds of uh, claims that they make. But, but in reality, the archaeology is fueling their effort. That's paying their paycheck. You know, many of the, the officers who engaged in archaeology in North Africa would never do archaeology again. They did so situationally. They had the resources to do it. It was something that passed the time. Maybe it distracted them from the kind of killing that they were doing. Some, few of them, not very many, expressed their distress about attacking civilians and killing young children, but, um, but not many of them. So I think that the archaeology becomes increasingly important sort of psychologically because it sort of gives justification for something maybe that seems rather pointless because what they're encountering is not ancient Rome, right? Like they're encountering an area that the French decided uh, relatively late in this process that they wanted to continue to inhabit and then later on engage in all kinds of experiments for what might be grown in, in North Africa, what, what could what could Algeria provide uh, to France? And it becomes a question of resource extraction. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. Not long after the conquest came the colonization. How did the mass migration of French people to Algeria impact the Roman ruins? So early on in the process, there's not a lot of migration to the region. Um, What you see at the very beginning are mostly uh, the soldiers, thousands of them, right? So Within a decade, the size of the uh, army presence in North, or the military presence in North Africa shifts from, you know, the, in the range of 30,000 to 120 under, under uh, the Governor General Bougeaud. So there's a very rapid expansion of the military in this period. The civilian presence, it takes time. In the beginning, there's a small amount of civilian, and here I mean civilian European presence, it's relatively limited because they don't have the, I mean, they're taking resources from indigenous villages, but, but there's a limit on, on how many people they can support. And the supply chain, which is linked through Toulon in the, in the south of France, 
is bringing supplies for the military. And the other thing to keep in mind is the very, very uh, high level of, of disease among the Europeans when they get to North Africa. Um, they're dying of cholera. Far more Europeans die of disease than they do actually in the from from uh, from the military um, engagements in which uh, they're participating. So uh, I think there's some reluctance at the beginning to have a large civilian population, but but this begins to change. The French begin to experiment with, for instance, creating farms to think about what the civilian presence might do. But there is some reluctance of the French population to come. And I think this is in part why you see a much broader um, influx of population uh, from, from places like Italy or Sicily, uh, Sardinia, um, other places in the Mediterranean, also uh, from their Greek migrants to the area. Um, but they get sort of classed as European and ultimately you know, the idea is that they, they have a greater chance of becoming French. So in the, in the early phase, it's quite different than, say, post-1848. That's when, you know, North Africa becomes a part of, um, becomes a part of France. The three districts in, in Algeria um, get incorporated into France. And also you see efforts by the government, particularly uh, in uh, the period of 1848, this happens again in 1870, to take, for instance, uh, people in 1870 are fleeing um, uh, Alsace-Lorraine when it's taken over by the Germans. At this point, you know, the French government says, oh, we'll, we'll move people uh, to North Africa. We can resettle them there. They were farmers there. They can be farmers in North Africa. That usually didn't pan out. And in 1848, actually, the, the French have the idea Oh, we could take um, some of the people. This happens again in 1852 um, when Napoleon III is trying to um, get rid of people who are critical of the coup d'etat and the creation of the empire. So you see uh, Algeria used as, in essence, a prison for some of the people who are considered undesirable that are causing too much trouble in France. So the idea later they would be you know, shipped off to the Pacific. Um, but, but at this point, uh, places like Lambasis, which is actually an archaeological site, gets turned into a prison camp. So um, using remains from the archaeological site to uh, build the prison that's still there today. So um, th this influx, so, so first of all, I would say the military itself has a very negative impact, as I've already mentioned, on the state of archaeological remains of Roman remains in this period. The, the Roman military destroys a large number of sites and uses this material in, 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 in its new structures. But the civilian population also begins to cause a lot of damage to these sites. Um, because they want to establish properties in these places, right? Or they're interested in uh, doing their own little excavations at these sites. So, so as the civilian population increases, not only uh, is this land being confiscated from more and more of the indigenous population, but it also has an impact on the remains. Um, with the creation of these archaeological societies in North Africa in the 18 especially from the 1850s, you see uh, local uh, colonists doing their own excavations of putting these materials into museums. There is competition between the museum that's established in Algiers um, with those in places like Const Constantine has 
a lot more local archaeological material than, than Algiers does, at least dating from the Roman period. Um, and so um, you also see the movement of materials, and sometimes we can't identify where things originally came from. Um, in the 1850s, we also see um, uh, somebody uh, named uh, uh, Ernest Renier who comes, catalogs uh, materials that he's finding, um, uh, particularly inscriptions, and by the 1870s, most of those have been destroyed. So um, the civilian and the military um, uh, um, presence has a huge, huge impact on the survival uh, of archaeological material. And of course, some material is being taken back uh, to France, mostly to um, uh, Paris, but not exclusively so. Um, so yeah, I would say the civilian presence and the increase in migration to the region um, has largely a, a negative impact on these remains, although it does produce a few studies of them. But even within the lifetime of those who wrote these studies, a lot of these uh, remains had already been destroyed. So. Perhaps not a theme, but ever-present in the work is irony. At one point, you mention how the French army sought to protect Roman ruins from the destruction of artifacts by incoming French citizens by sending the pieces back to France for preservation. In another instance, you note how French officers simultaneously claimed that indigenous peoples were ignorant of Roman ruins and their significance, yet they often relied on indigenous peoples for information on the ruins. Finally, the French nation increasingly sought to civilize Algeria by making it more French, to the point that Algeria even became a part of France proper, not a colony. Simultaneously, French officials deported failed revolutionaries to Algeria because it was so far removed from France. Did colonizing policymakers ever recognize these contradictions, and how did they deal with them? Yeah, that's an interesting question, and a very big one. It's hard to think about how to address this question. I think, in part, what you see happening is the logic of colonization, that anything goes if you can convince enough people of that narrative. So let me think about a way in which I can explain that a little bit better. But as I mentioned before, the French are largely writing to other French. During the period described in my book, I really um, don't, well, the French really try to prevent people of, um, of competing countries, particularly the English and uh, later in the 1870s, the German, from coming into Algeria and seeing uh, what, what they've done. So that's one of the few places in which you can see this narrative disrupted. So um, one of the things that I found which was quite interesting is that at a certain point, the French aren't only interested in Roman remains, but they also begin to talk about um, prehistoric remains, standing stones. So in those cases, and this is in the late 1850s or so, there are some French scholars who even begin to claim that these standing stones were, were built by the, the Celts, right? Like that these are Gallic standing stones. And this also shows that not only was it because of the Romans, but because 
the ancient Gauls must have been in North Africa as well, which is kind of preposterous. Now, in the case of these arguments, the field of prehistory in this period is also sort of just beginning. And, I mean, the French become a laughingstock for making that, or at least the scholars who made that argument become a laughingstock, because they're saying, well, they're standing stones in uh, Sweden. Are you going to claim Sweden as being founded by the Gauls as well? So when there was an international audience, it became much more difficult to press the kinds of claims that the French were quite willing to do for the Roman period, which they were basically making the case to other French. This, though, becomes disrupted in the 1870s. So there was a very large project called the CIL, uh, which was um, a, a, collection, a, a project that was initiated from Berlin that was about the cataloging of Roman inscriptions. And, um, of course, at the period in which this was undertaken, in the late 1860s and then in the early 1870s, things changed quite radically because of the Franco-Prussian War, whereas in the beginning, scholars like Renier, uh, who had studied the inscriptions back in the 1850s, was willing to collaborate with Berlin. Um, after 1870, um, this goodwill um, obviously disappeared, and the Germans wanted to send their own representative to North Africa to study these remains, and in fact, they succeeded in doing so only after um, uh, some uh, pressing, because the, the French were quite territorial and protective of this territory being theirs, and not allowing German um, scholars to so-called colonize an area which they saw as belonging to them. And so, um, because the Germans were very, very critical of what the French had done, and the level of destruction seen in Algeria um, couldn't really be paralleled with, with other areas uh, in which uh, these kinds of excavations had been undertaken, because the war was so violent and the destruction so massive that there was great... Um, I mean, there was great embarrassment. Like, the French didn't want it to be exposed. The fact that of all these inscriptions that Renier cataloged, thousands of them with the help of, of, of some of the officers, that most of them were gone. They didn't exist anymore. They were dependent on, on his notes to understand what had been there and what was there no longer at places, for instance, like Lambasis, and later, uh, for instance, at Timgad. So um, I think... That's part of what enabled the contradiction was by limiting the news that went from Algeria back, especially in the period of the 1830s and 1840s, that the, the, the Ministry of War was able to sort of keep a, a handle on those contradictions, and they were able to dictate the terms. The indigenous uh, population was really not in a position to challenge and I think maybe the, the monuments were the least of their worries, right? It was about survival. And so the French could keep these inherent contradictions and also to change the narrative when it became productive to do so. And this is what I've seen, especially since uh, completing the book, was that in the, um, the 1880s, um, that... Uh, that, that the, the narrative, for instance, many of the archaeologists in that period are um, missionaries. And so they changed the narrative. So for them, far more important than the Third Augustan Legion was the period of St. Augustine. 
And for them, it was a story of Christianity rather than a story uh, of uh, imperial conquest. So, so they could dictate the terms, and these changed over time, and this becomes uh, really, uh, really important uh, in understanding uh, these contradictions, I think, because it was very malleable, but only certain parties had the right to, to change that narrative. Even as the nation of France colonized Algeria, it underwent dramatic changes at home. In 1830, during the initial invasion, France's Bourbon monarchy fell and was replaced with the July monarchy that same year. In 1848, Louis-Philippe's regime ended and the Second Republic came to power. Within four years, the Second Empire was established. How did upheaval in France impact Algerian colonization and the archaeological works? So I think it's helpful to keep in mind that, that the policies related to the conquest and also what was happening on the ground in Algeria was never monolithic. What I observed in the archives was there were different levels on which decisions were being made. And very important, of course, was the monarch, but the monarch was not really in charge of what was happening. Far more important was what was happening in the Ministry of War and who was in charge of that effort, and particularly in Algeria, who was the governor general, who was making decisions that occurred there. And then even below that was what decisions individual officers were making about uh, how to spend their time and how they were going to allot their resources. So what you see happening is often the Ministry of War there's tension with the Ministry of War and the Governor General. There's also tension between the Ministry of War and the Ministry of Public Instruction, and also uh, what's happening with the um, the Académie des Inscriptions Belles. There's tension there as well. So what often happens on the ground is quite different from what they're imagining in metropolitan France, and often what the Governor General wants to happen. So in the 1840s, for instance, Bougeaud is furious that archaeological undertakings are happening on his watch because he wants his resources in the Sahara. This is a distraction. The Ministry of War is kind of contending with um, you know, the Ministry of, the, of, of Public Instruction, the Ministry of the Interior, uh, who may be more interested in the fate of the archaeological artifacts. Uh, than he is. So as we see these regime changes, it does have an impact on the kind of resources that go into Algeria and the way this is envisioned. But especially in the 1830s, 1840s, I would say that it's it's the, the governor general, it's the Armée d'Afrique, as the, the French army was known in this period, that dictate a lot of the terms that are happening back to what's happening, in part by subterfuge, by not sort of explaining exactly what's happening on the ground. Um, we can see this, for instance, uh, with, um, with the, uh, the massacres that happened uh, at, uh, at Dara. It takes some time for this information to be relayed back to metropolitan France, and they certainly don't want uh, politicians to know what's happening on the ground, because if public opinion turns against this, the same kinds of resources that are going into North Africa uh, might not make it there. 
So you do see under Napoleon III greater interest in what's happening um, in terms of archaeology, putting more resources into uh, this material. Um, but, you know, M Napoleon III had many things happening at the same time. I would say it's certainly uh, far less important to him than, like, say, the sites that he's interested in France, like uh, Alasia, uh, and his interest in, you know, Julius Caesar is, is more important than what's happening on the ground in Algeria in terms of archaeological remains. But it is important, and this is why I organized the book chronologically, is to think about how these policies change. I roughly did it sort of decade by decade because um, you could see then the way in which the emphases change, the narrative changes, um, the kinds of resources change. Key to this is the creation of archaeological societies and museums in the 1850s. Then you begin also then to have uh, colonial, um, the colonial settlers have an opinion about this. So, um, so I would say that the changes that happen in France do have an impact, but it's somewhat removed from what increasingly is happening uh, on the ground um, and the way in which uh, these remains are being treated. What were the long-lasting impacts of French archaeological works in colonial Algeria, and how have those impacted the two countries today? This is a very difficult question, and I'm not, you know, a specialist necessarily in modern um, sort of uh, relations between uh, France and Algeria. But what I can tell you is that, that especially um, after the Algerian Revolution, that there was, in essence, the structures that were supporting Roman archaeology were linked to metropolitan France. So from the 1960s, they are tainted and they're associated with colonial presence and colonial narratives and colonial violence. So the problem being is in Algeria, what then do you do with those remains today, right? So some of them were exported to, um, to metropolitan France, but not a large number. So um, I'm not aware, and, and I could be wrong, about negotiations for repatriation of these antiquities to Algeria. I think that's of less interest than what happens to those remains in Algeria today. The difficulty is, is that the French were so successful in convincing people that these were French remains, that following the revolution, people still look at these things. The Roman material is being associated with French imperialism and French colonialism and a period of, of, of rapaciousness. And so there's not, if you compare, for instance, uh, the remains in places like Tunisia, which also had French presence from the 1880s, but which had less, um, impact um, and was not was a violent takeover but not nearly as violent as what happened in Algeria there there seems to be a bit more receptiveness to the fate of these Roman remains and also because in Tunisia there was also the excavation of Punic remains uh, which people identify this is from the Carthaginian period with much more closely that they can say in a way that these are our remains in the same way that you say, see in Egypt, where there is an association with the pre-Islamic past, 
with an identification and, and great pride uh, if we can see you know, the, 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 the attention that the Egyptian government is giving to uh, Egyptology, the Egypt, Egyptian past, and, and the pride that's taken in those materials today. Algeria does not have, say, the same level of tourism that, say, you see either in Tunisia or Morocco um, or uh, certainly Egypt. And there's a great deal of ambivalence towards uh, this Roman past. And I would say um, with this project, I think there's a lot less knowledge among Algerians of what the French did with these remains and, and how important this was. This is in part why I'm, I'm so excited that the National Endowment for Humanities um, has um, sponsored, um, has made it possible uh, for my book to be released in the next few months um, as open access, because my hope is that people in Algeria will become more familiar with um, this history uh, of the use of archaeology for ideological purposes, and also perhaps be able to reclaim some of these remains um, as part of their heritage and not part of the heritage of France. So it's, it's a very, um, there's a lot of tension between, in this question and in terms of, the, of what will happen to these archaeological remains within Algeria. I think this is an ongoing uh, question about where resources for the national patrimony of Algeria uh, should be uh, spent. Um, of course, you know, the French didn't give a lot of attention to, um, to the uh, structures that were built in, in the Arab period, and, and this is obviously something uh, that, that is part of the Algerian patrimony as well. So, but, but I would say that the Roman materials are not viewed very positively. The concern is just what, what will happen to these Roman remains, what is happening to them right now, if they are not a priority um, of, uh, of, the, uh, of the Algerian uh, government. The book is Incidental Archaeologists, French Officers, and the Rediscovery of Roman North Africa. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. It was my pleasure. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.